In September of 2018, the Macomb County Public Works Office in Michigan cleared out an obstruction from a sewer line. It was 100 feet long, 11 feet wide, and 6 feet tall. The blockage was a collection of oils, grease, fat, and even solid items like baby wipes and hair. What do you even call something like that? Sewer blob? Garbage monster? Turns out, these blobs have a name. They're called fatbergs. Not bad. When you think of an 11-foot-wide collection of oily sewer debris, what word comes to mind? Disgusting? Fascinating? They are a huge nuisance. This is Ashra Srinivasan, a research associate in the Department of Civil Engineering at the University of British Columbia. Nuisance might be a gentler, more generous description of a fatberg. Aside from being annoying to local governments and communities, they're also pretty gross. And not great for the environment either. Fatbergs are essentially made of what is called as fog. That stands for fats, oils, and grease. And other items like wet wipes, hair, um, makeup pads, anything that is not supposed to be flushed down the toilet, any large items that get flushed. So all these things clump with fats and they form a huge clump or a huge mass that clog the sewer lines or the sewer pipes. Asha and her team are finding ways to get rid of fatbergs because the underground obstructions are becoming pretty common. In Baltimore in 2017, a fatberg caused over a million gallons of sewage to overflow into a local stream. In October of 2018, divers in South Carolina had to swim through raw sewage to unclog pipes blocked by flushable wipes. In September of 2017, workers in London's East End discovered one of the biggest fatbergs ever seen. The monstrosity weighed an estimated 130 metric tons and was the size of 11 double-decker buses. A chunk of the fatberg even went on display at the Museum of London. Turns out this gigantic sewer blocker is just the tip of the fatberg. Sorry about that. As you might expect, in our modern world, filled with products of all kinds, we make a lot of trash. In this episode of Here's an Idea, we look at the junk in our sewers, in our wastebaskets, in our oceans, and even out in space. We'll talk to Asha and three other researchers who are finding small and kind of fun ways to take out the trash. So, here's an idea. Garbage. When you print out paper, do you feel guilty? After all, a tree gave its life for that document from work you took home with you. Or those printed home tickets you left in the copy room. Maybe you don't feel that bad, but engineer Carl Yee did. I try not to print too much, try to do everything on the screen. But there's some times where I do end up printing, particularly if I'm proofreading something or, or it's a, a long article that I want to read. And I always felt guilty about it. A 2014 study from the Paperless Project had determined that U.S. paper for the last 20 years increased from 92 million tons to 208 million tons. There are consequences to this growth. Beyond deforestation, paper mills contribute to air and land pollution levels, and discarded paper makes up about 25% of waste in landfills. Given the environmental toll, Carl Yee wanted to be able to print paper with less of the guilt. After time spent engineering car doors for Saturn and designing medical devices for Boston Scientific, Carl thought of an idea that he couldn't believe hadn't been patented before. Disappearing ink for printers. It seemed to me, if you could just reuse the paper, that would make the most sense. So I ended up looking for, uh, I figured that, you know, the simplest thing would be if the ink just disappeared. Then you could just reuse the paper over and over. In a way, the paper would become like a screen that you put the information on it when you need it and then goes away. 
So I figured that seems like an obvious idea. Somebody must already be selling that. And I, I looked all over trying to buy some. Turns out nobody had created that yet. And I dug a little deeper and found out that nobody had patented that idea either. The former engineer then spent time in his San Diego garage formulating what he described as a purposefully lousy ink, one that slowly fades after being printed. The gradual disappearance of the ink allows the paper to be used again and again. How does it work exactly? Here's a quick explanation. The ink uses a pH indicator as a dye. The pH of the ink is high, which makes the dye colored. After printing, the ink absorbs carbon dioxide from the air, which acidifies the ink and lowers the pH. At the lower pH, the dye is colorless, so the ink is no longer visible. The printing begins to fade immediately, and it's a gradual process. So generally, readability is good on the first day, decent on the second day, kind of marginal on the third day. But then it takes probably, depending on how dark the printing was, two to three weeks until it's completely blank that you can't tell that anything was ever there. You would not be able to tell even with a magnifying glass, that this was not brand new paper. Carl says the ideal applications are for people who print and feel that paper guilt, who want to print something out real quick and may just need it for that moment. In fact, let's say you're an inventor being interviewed for a podcast. That might be an ideal scenario for the disappearing ink. In preparation for my speaking with you, Billy, I ended up uh, printing out some notes, and I realized I would need them for the next hour or two, and then I would not need them again. So I printed them out using the self-erasing ink, um, and everything's you know accessible to me now. I actually have four sheets of paper spread out over the desk. So if I want to look at a particular topic, I, my eyes can just go there directly. I don't have to scroll around through the screen, and you know there are no pop-up ads or anything. So it's it, it's very productive for me. When we're done, I'm just going to put these papers in a stack and forget about them. And probably about three weeks later, they will be completely blank, indistinguishable from regular paper. I can put those back into a printer. I can make hand notes on them. I could print them again with self-erasing ink or, or regular laser or inkjet printing. It really doesn't matter because essentially it's the same as brand new paper. It's possible, too, to engineer different versions that would disappear at different rates. If you print darker, it will last longer. If you print lighter, it'll disappear faster. In fact, it even helped his daughter learn subtraction. Very quickly, in fact, because she was on the clock. When I was developing this, my daughter was very young and was needing to do some extra math problems. I think they were just something like subtraction. And so I went online and found a bunch of subtraction problems. But for little kids, there's, you know, the print is huge. They have maybe six problems on an entire page. And, you know, each problem only takes her, you know, 15 seconds. So it, I was printing out tons of these things, but it worked out well because I was using self-erasing ink and I also had a pen that had um, self-erasing ink. So we could keep using the same paper over and over again. But this particular formulation was actually very fast erasing. So she had this time pressure. She had to finish the problems as quickly as she could, or she couldn't even read them. So there's a lot of a uh, fun stuff that can happen with this. It's not entirely clear who could benefit the most from this idea. Could it be elementary school students trying to learn their times tables? A media company that uses up reams of paper every day? 
But all anyone or any company would have to do is swap out their current printer cartridge for Carl's paper saver cartridge. He's still finalizing the name. Before a planned launch in 2019, Carl wants to do a little more testing and some pilot usage as well. For example, I was speaking with a local law firm and they're trying to go paperless, but not succeeding. And so I want to, I'll just give them a printer and say, hey, here's a printer, here's some ink. Uh, try this out. Uh, tell me, you know, what works for you and what doesn't. Perhaps a law firm might not be the best place to try out disappearing ink, especially if they'll be writing up binding contracts. Carl's heard those concerns before, but he's confident that the applications for disappearing ink are no joke. I think it's so interesting with most technologies that do something new, the applications end up being slightly different than what the inventors or creators anticipated. And so my goal is to get this out there, modify it as people demand it, but also just see what applications and what uses actually come up. The wastebaskets and recycling bins in our offices here on Earth are filled with paper. Space has its own version of that, except instead of discarded paper, it's the printer itself. Size-wise, at least. Space is littered with printer-sized debris. Old satellite parts, rocket pieces, some even as big as a fatberg. On April 4, 2018, a SpaceX Dragon spacecraft arrived at the International Space Station, with some tools to clean up the mess. The spacecraft's payload was a satellite platform filled with ideas. A net, a harpoon, a laser-ranging instrument, a sail, and two miniature satellites known as CubeSats. This was all part of a mission called Remove Debris that was developed by a group of leading space companies and the UK's University of Surrey. Remove Debris is one of the world's first efforts to clean up the estimated 40,000 pieces of space junk currently orbiting Earth. A month after launch, the Remove Debris satellite was led into orbit. Once in orbit, the demonstrations began. And it turns out there's a lot of junk up there. There's about 7,000 tons up there at the moment. And this debris is actually things like bits of old rockets and uh, old satellites and things that we've been using in space for the last 50 years. This is Richard Duke, a research officer at the University of Surrey and a member of the Remove Debris team. About 10 of the 100 researchers in the Surrey Space Centre are currently working with Duke on the Remove Debris project. The big problem with space debris is all of this is moving around at about 17,000 miles an hour. So even if a small, tiny bit of debris hits a spacecraft, it's just catastrophic. Space debris can cause lots of damage to orbiting spacecraft, or to satellites that we use for GPS in our day-to-day life on Earth, or to manned spacecraft. Astronauts on board the space station, in fact, have to face the risk of getting hit by this space debris every single day. The little pieces, the CubeSats and the, the smaller spacecraft, are generally in lower orbits, so they'll come down naturally anyway. But it's actually the really big pieces that we were worried about. And the main reason for this is if a big piece of space debris gets hit by a smaller piece, then that could just turn into you know thousands of bits of debris, which just makes the problem really bad. Taking on these pieces, the tiny ones and the ones the size of a printer, required the removed debris mothership built by Surrey Satellite Technology just down the road from Richards University. The mothership has four experiments on board, each with very different hardware. Idea number one, a net, approximately five meters wide in diameter. So we actually put one of our CubeSats inside the mother spacecraft, and we eject this CubeSat, and that's to simulate some space debris. 
And then on the mothership, we also have uh, a net from Airbus, and we can fire that net at our now CubeSat, our simulated space debris, and actually uh, grab it and, uh, and capture it. And it worked well. You can see a video of it on our episode page or on YouTube. The second experiment is visual-based navigation, or VBN for short, which will be tested out by the end of the year. We're actually trying to develop the sensors needed to detect space debris. And so what we need to make sure the sensors work is we need a, a fixed target. So we use one of our CubeSats built at the University of Surrey. We eject that from the mothership. And what happens is this CubeSat actually knows where it is and can tell the mothership where it is. So then we can compare that to the data we're getting from the sensors and we can make sure that the two are in alignment and actually the sensors are, are good enough to use on future missions. There's also a harpoon. The harpoon is about eight inches long right now, so more like a mini harpoon. A scaled-up version of the harpoon, about a meter long, is currently under testing for future missions. We actually don't want to move in target for this experiment, so we uh, eject a, a boom from the mothership, and this has a target on it that's very representative of normal spacecraft. And we're actually going to fire a harpoon at it. And it's actually really interesting, so we want to see how the harpoon moves in space. Because on the ground, there's obviously gravity and there's aerodynamics. Well, when you're in space, you're in a vacuum. So we expect the harpoon to work very differently. So uh, we're going to fire this harpoon at the target and then uh, see, uh, see how that works. The final experiment on board the satellite is a drag sail. By deploying a sail, the spacecraft will slow down, come out of orbit, and burn up. After all, Richard and his team don't want the removed debris spacecraft to become space junk itself. So this, uh, this sail experiment is actually going to demonstrate that we can use this technology to bring satellites down uh, in a safe way. Each of the experiments occur every month or so, which gives the removed debris team just enough time to get all the data downlinked to the ground, where research scientists can then analyze how well the demos worked out. For going up and getting bigger objects, the team is going to need to scale up the technology. In other words, they're going to need a bigger net. The bigger the space debris, the bigger the spacecraft uh, going up to remove it will have to be. You know, in the future, we're going to have to go up and get things that are double-decker bus-sized. So this first mission is a demonstration, really, one that can be scaled up for proper missions. I'm really encouraged, especially from our first test. I mean, th these tests are actually are really, really difficult, uh, not only because they're a one-shot, so we only get one chance of demonstrating this. Uh, and after, you know, five, ten years of working on it, that's actually... It's actually quite a risky thing just to just to test your uh, your theory. So actually, the fact that the first one worked and worked really well is actually you know giving a real bit of confidence that we can actually sort the problem out uh, with some of the technologies that we're demonstrating. This is all pretty uplifting stuff, right? A reusable paper that saves trees, a harpoon that can bring down old rocket parts in space. With smart people developing innovative ideas, there's a sense of possibility that we can all find ways to contribute to an overall better environment. We can make a dent in our problems of waste. Captain Charles Moore is a bit more pessimistic. You know, I'm sort of the bad news guy. Maybe he's earned the right to be the bad news guy. After all, he's seen one of the largest environmental disasters up close. In 1997, aboard his boat on the way home to California from Hawaii, Captain Moore steered into a kind of watery junkyard what came to be known as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. The patch is made up of various pieces of plastic and debris, more than an estimated 1.8 trillion pieces, in fact. 
This rarely traveled region contains a soupy mass of plastic waste, about the size of Texas. Was this something that could be seen all at once back in 1997? Not necessarily, says Captain Moore. It wasn't like an aha moment where I saw some big patch of plastic. It was just an inkling that something was amiss and seeing a piece of plastic here float by and another piece of plastic. I said, well, if I'm seeing this phenomenon on a regular basis, then it's not just a trail of, you know, cookie crumbs for me leading like Hansel and Gretel back to their home. This, this is a phenomenon of a larger area. Captain Moore talked to some of his colleagues who conduct scientific monitoring of ocean phenomena. The team's plan was to go back and look at the area two years later with scientific equipment. It was on that first trawl, a mission to just test out the equipment, really, and drag a net through the surface of the ocean, where they got some pretty bad signs. We haven't even got to where we thought the center of this uh, high was, uh, and pulled it up and had it, you know, brimming with plastic. That was the aha moment. That was when I realized, "Uh uh-oh, I'm not even there yet, and I'm seeing all this plastic in this first sample. Something is seriously wrong out here. After stumbling upon the North Pacific Ocean's plastic soup in 1997, Captain Moore set out to quantify the massive problem. To answer the question, how much plastic is in the ocean and why? In the process of determining this, he's become a citizen activist and scientist, devoted to both researching the problem and raising public awareness. Since then, Captain Moore has made 11 trips to the North Pacific. Trawls of the region mostly come back with small bits and pieces of plastic that are fragments of formerly intact objects, but bottle caps and abandoned plastic fishing nets are common. Eventually, the team found that the pieces of plastic outnumber zooplankton, the ocean's food base, by a ratio of 6 to 1. And unfortunately, more than 20 years after the first discovery, the garbage patch is still there, even if it's moving around somewhat. It's been going north, it's been going south, it's been going east, it's been going west, it's had the shape of an oval, it's had the shape of a pear, it's had the shape of a circle. The patch changes shape and location over time, and it's actually providing a kind of coastal habitat. In a way, the patch resembles a kind of boat dock at your local marina. Out there at the patch now, you'll see coral reefs are forming, and the plastic objects, especially massive ones like warehouse pallets, offer plenty of space for fish and other organisms looking for a home. You know, we're switching to plastic pallets for transportation of goods. And the last voyage uh, out there, I found two of these. I, I mean, I picked up two, but, you know, there was a lot more. And, and they're enormous and heavy objects that are going to take a long time to break down. High-density polyethylene, uh, maybe weighing, you know, a pallet could weigh 40, 50 pounds. And that's a lot of stuff to break down, a lot of habitat, a lot of places to hide. By providing shelter for small fish, the objects end up being a platform for a kind of bioaccumulation. Suddenly with these makeshift trash habitats, you get a collection of tiny aquatic invertebrates. Then barnacles, then crabs, then marine worms. All these organisms used to be food for bigger creatures like the jellyfish. The plastic patch ends up rocking the food chain. Now we've got this kind of coastal zone biome. Uh, in the middle of the ocean that's taking all the nutrients that would have gone to these other creatures. So there's winners, which are the things that stick to the plastic, and then the losers are the things that were there before, that were these beautiful salp colonies and the purple genthinus snails. Uh, those things are, are losing. On each mission, Captain Moore can be found on the Algita, a beauty of a vessel, he says. The research vessel is an aluminum-hulled 50-foot-long catamaran with 600 meters of cable attached, twin diesel engines, and a kilowatt of available solar power. Over the years, the mission aboard the Algita has changed, from first trying to quantify how much plastic is out there to seeing how much it's impacting the ocean life. 
One organism Captain Moore is focusing on is the lanternfish, one of the most common deep-sea creatures and a major source of food for marine animals. The fish migrates from the depths to the surface at night. That's when Captain Moore and his crew of about a half dozen researchers capture the lanternfish so they can study the fish's hormone levels and study the way that the plastic is hurting the fish. And plastic is decreasing the fitness of the fish, says the captain. One is by uh, failing to give them nutrition. The other is by poisoning them uh, with the chemicals sorbed to the plastics. And the third way is by inhibiting their daily migration. The largest daily migration of life on Earth takes place in the deep ocean when creatures uh, living below the photic zone that would be consumed by predators if they stayed where the light penetrated, uh, they come up from the dark depths and, and feed at night. And these uh, fish, these lanternfish, are accident-prone in the sense of eating plastic because they're only feeding at night. They're in a big hurry. They dart around, and they grab anything that will fit in their mouth. And we found up to 83 pieces in a 6-inch long fish, you know. This is going to be one of the signals of the crash of the marine ecosystem because of plastic waste. Quantification can be published. Can you prove the harm of plastic in the ocean? Well, not exactly. That's part of the problem because death goes unnoticed in the ocean. Things that are weak are consumed. We'll never really be able to give you a number for who's dying, how, how many of them are dying, and, and what's the harm truly being done. That that will require some kind of uh, new techniques that haven't been developed yet, and I'm not sure that we can do that. And it's still difficult, you know, we're, we're still working on that. That's why we're starting with stress levels. It's not just the fish who can be impacted by the plastic. Captain Moore wonders, what if we keep breathing in these plastic nanoparticles? What if our brains are half plastic by 2050? What if we can't think anymore, you know? That's the kind of stuff I worry about. Plastic, after all, is everywhere. You can't beat plastic if you're creating a new marketable gizmo or packaging it. You can make whatever you want with plastic. Plastic is moldable. It's part of our lives, and it's not going anywhere. We have polyester clothes, soda bottles, factory pallets. Even the dust in the air that used to be mineral in origin is now polymeric. There have been recent efforts to address the plastic problem. The Ocean Cleanup, a separate nonprofit effort begun by Dutch inventor Boyan Slot when he was 18, has a goal to clean up 50% of the patch in five years, with a 90% reduction by 2040. Using a 600-meter-long floating platform, the technology acts as a kind of underwater Roomba. The floater keeps plastics from flowing over the system, while a 3-meter skirt stops debris from escaping underneath. The science and technology may be getting better, but the reality is getting worse, says Moore, the bad news guy, who says we'll need more than just a magic bullet to address the problems of a plastic ocean. It's similar to climate change, where for all the bombast about the situation, uh, the situation continues to get worse. And it gets worse fast with plastic, even faster in some ways than climate change, because uh, the petroleum industry now is faced with the problem of electrification of transportation, which their major moneymaker was fuel. And so now with uh, energy uh, being produced alternatively, uh, Plastic has been their salvation. Uh, they're pushing for a quadrupling of production of plastics. Despite the gloomy scenario, Captain Moore does emphasize the importance of making cleanup efforts fun. If a garbage patch can be fun, exactly. Michael Doshi is a colleague who's certainly trying. Using social media like Instagram and characters he's created like the gnarly beach cleaner, 
to bring some positivity and lightness to an often discouraging scene. Doshi's Make It Fun campaign supports and brings awareness to beach cleanups and other ways of ridding trash and plastics from the coast and the water. But even with fun characters, it's difficult to be hopeful when you're in a sea of plastic. You know, I'm trying to make it fun, but uh, it's a gloomy scenario. We like to hear about engineering solutions like the ones we've heard today. Solutions for reducing paper waste and space junk. There are even solutions to those monstrous fatbergs that you heard about at the beginning of the episode. Asha and her team at the University of British Columbia developed a process that breaks down the fatbergs, fats, oils, and grease, or fog, as Asha refers to it. A tank known as a biodigester houses anaerobic bacteria that digest the organic material and produce greater amounts of a biofuel known as methane. Our process involves microwave heating and addition of hydrogen peroxide. So this is a microwave-enhanced advanced oxidation process where we heat fog up to um, 110 or 120 degrees Celsius and simultaneously add hydrogen peroxide during the treatment. So this process is specifically tailor-made to pre-treat fog to produce, uh, uh, it could be to produce um, uh, more energy efficiently in the form of biogas or if it could be combined with um, other waste streams such as uh, manure or sewage sludge. By hitting fatbergs with microwaves, and adding hydrogen peroxide, Asha's team was able to decrease the number of unusable solids, like antimicrobial compounds, in the samples by up to 80%. Japan is developing its own solution to the fatbergs, too. In an upgrade to the Tokyo infrastructure, wastewater can now be carried from households and sewer pipes, where it arrives at a water reclamation center, and large particles are removed, and sediments are allowed to settle. Many of the ideas you've heard today, disappearing ink, Fatberg methane makers, space harpoons, do solve problems. But some problems are too complicated and don't have one solution. Some problems, like the enormous plastic soup in our ocean, are massive, and the impacts have yet to even be understood. A problem can't be attacked piecemeal, says Captain Moore. We have a refill station in our office where you can come in and get your uh, refill your bottle for your soap, your shampoo, your body oils and uh, wrappers for your food instead of saran wrap and that sort of thing. Uh, we, we attack it at the reuse level. Uh, we, we, we talk about plastic-free lifestyles and uh, we, we talk about reducing our plastic footprint because that's all we can do. But that's, that's biting around the... That's like, you know, the article about the plastic straws being, you know, uh, a very minor part of the problem. Well, that that's all we, we're given. That's all that. That's the space we have to work in. Until we recognize that the whole itself is the problem and see it as a whole subject to change, uh, then we, we haven't got a chance to truly attack uh, the source of the problem. Science has established that our plastic usage and dependence is problematic, but no one really wants to hear about it. It's a downer. Hence the need to make it fun with Fatberg Museum exhibits and gnarly beachcombers. We can turn down plastic bags at grocery stores and delis. We can make sure not to flush wet wipes down the toilet. Science and tech can only take us so far. Making progress in the ocean requires both innovative technologies as well as a rallying of support, one fueled by public awareness and new policies, and one that has a global buy-in of support. A whole community to address the whole of the problem. We need more space to work in, 
There's just a lot of stuff in the way. This has been an episode of Here's an Idea. It was written and produced by me, Billy Hurley, Kendra Smith, and Peter Bonavita. For more information about the technologies featured in today's podcast, you can visit our episode page at techbriefs.com slash podcasts. Here we'll link to Captain Moore's 2014 book, Plastic Ocean, as well as Q&A transcripts with the guests you've heard today. Our podcast page also gives you an opportunity to subscribe to our Here's an Idea newsletter, which provides photos, facts, and follow-ups on the technologies and technology creators featured in each episode. We want to hear from you. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts, and send us feedback to podcasts at techbriefs.com.